0: This is Derek Rose. Derek Rose. Derek Rose. This is Derek Rose of the Conscious Resistance. I'm here in Standing Run. That man is wanted in five different countries: Chile, Argentina, Brazil. We've
1: been fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much.
2: So many loved ones gone. Don't you, fucking tease that horse? you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. Ah, we all stay alive. You have no
0: idea. Hey, everyone, this is Derek Rose with the Conscious Resistance Network, and tonight is Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. I am still here in San Francisco in my little hotel room here. Um, I apologize ahead of time if the connection gets spotty. I'm doing my best to bring you guys information, important information about this first week of the fluoride trial, which has just concluded. Now it's been six full days of testimony starting last Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And then again uh, today, Wednesday, Tuesday, and Monday of this week. We're off tomorrow, Thursday. Court resumes on Friday, and then we have Monday and Tuesday left. So there's only three days left in this, and um, these in this trial and these proceedings. And I'll be here in San Francisco all the way to the end. And tonight I'm going to be sharing with you guys everything, or mostly everything, I think you need to know related to week one. Uh, as I mentioned, I've been here in San Francisco. For those who follow me on Twitter, I've been live tweeting every day for five hours a day, Monday through, uh, you know, Wednesday through Friday and Monday through Wednesday this week, from 830 Pacific to 130 Pacific in the courtroom live, and just listening and following along as best as I can, and making sure you guys get the facts and the data that that you need to know. I've also done an interview with Ryan Christian of The Last American Vagabond, and we've released four different interviews, including one with lead attorney Michael Connet. Uh, Dr. Bruce Lanfear, Dr. Howard Hu, and Dr. Bruce Grunging. We're going to play clips of all those interviews tonight, and I'm going to give you some more information on what happened today as the Fluoride Action Network officially rested their case after um, bringing five witnesses to the stand and questioning them, and, of course, the EPA cross-examining them. Today, the Fluoride Action Network officially rested their case, which is a big step. You know, they've put it all on the table now and put it all out there and hoping for a positive outcome. And tomorrow, uh, or actually what happened today, I'll just start with what happened today, and then we'll kind of work backwards. Uh, At the end of today, the EPA had presented their first witness, their first expert witness, Dr. David Savitz. We're going to talk more about him in just a little bit and in some future reports. But, yeah, so that was the beginning of of the, the EPA starting their witnesses, and they're expected to present three witnesses uh over the next couple days over friday and then presumably a little bit of monday and then after the fluoride action network attorneys uh the food and water watch fluoride action network moms against fluoridation all the groups and plaintiffs uh, who are involved there they will have their opportunity to present their final closing arguments and then the epa the, the attorneys representing the epa and the us government will present their closing arguments, and then next Tuesday it will end. There is not likely to be an immediate judgment where Judge Chen is going to rule Tuesday evening and say, okay, this is what I believe. He could if he wanted to, but more than likely he's going to take days, if not weeks, and maybe even months to go over all the data because, as I'm going to share in just a moment – some of this stuff has gotten pretty technical yesterday and the day before were were very hard. Um, you know, gotten to like the, the kind of minutiae of it all. And I believe, and I think others believe, that this is a, a purposeful strategy by the US government attorneys to try to create confusion and doubt in the judge's mind by really trying to get into the the nitty-gritty of some pieces of the science that are not necessarily relevant to making sure that the judge understands that fluoride is a neurotoxin. But nevertheless, let's go ahead and jump forward. I want to remind you guys, my website is theconsciousresistance.com, theconsciousresistance.com. Guys, this is where I've been producing content for going on 11 years now, and you can find everything I've done about water fluoridation here. You can see all the recent interviews I've done, including the report we're going to start with today, titled week one of part two of the fluoride lawsuit is over. Here's what you missed. I posted that earlier on the website and I email that out. So if you're signed up for my email list, you would have already seen this. So that's the benefit of when you visit the website and you see the pop-up sign up for the email list. This is where you can find my investigations, my documentaries, my books, my presentations I've given over the last decade. And you can see that we break things up by topic and category here, including at the bottom, uh, water fluoridation right here. You click on this page and this takes you to uh, I don't want to say every report I've ever done on fluoride, but definitely a lot of them I need to go through and kind of search and find some older ones. But a lot of it deals. Yeah, there's definitely way more than this. But most of this deals with um, the fluoride trial and that I've been following since 2019. And it started back in 2016 with a petition and a lawsuit in 2017. So all of this can be found at the So definitely book. Now, let's go ahead and start here. As I said, week one of part two of the fluoride lawsuit is over. Here's what you missed. And this is basically just kind of a little write-up I did earlier today, letting people know that I was going to go live and uh, linking to the articles we're about to cover. But also I want to show you this. For those of you who don't follow me on Twitter or use Twitter/x, slash X, I, I don't really like calling it X. Um, but you do want to check out what I've been doing on that platform, because, like I said, I've been live tweeting every day, and what that basically means is I'm sitting in the courtroom and I'm listening to the proceedings and I'm typing, you know in Twitter the free version I'm not gonna pay for it you get 140 characters so in 140 characters I'm telling you okay this is what just happened this is what just happened this is what just happened and it, it's it's a lot to consume so and as you see there for every day there's been part one part two part three only day two there was four different parts and basically I tweet all the way until we take a break once the judge is like all right let's take a 20 minute break I end that tweet thread and then when we come back I start a new one. so there's been mostly three different threads every day. And so this is on my website. You can click here, go ahead and open up. Let me just show you one of these links, what it looks like for those who've never used this. This is called Thread Reader, and it makes tweets, which can be sometimes confusing if you don't know how to find them or how to look through them. It makes them much more easy to manage and to digest. So every, what you're looking at here, every one of these statements, if you were to click it, it would open up a specific tweet that I said, but in here they just, they put them all in order. So it reads like an article. It reads very, simple and easy to kind of digest this way these are all individual tweets that i've been tweeting and created a thread so again you go back to my website over here and you can see day one part one part two part three day two day three day four day five and today is day six so every single tweet i've put out over the last week i've been here for nine days but there was only court for six of those days um that you every single day that i was there Tweeting, you can find it all right there and catch up. So that's the first thing I want to share with you because if you if you you know have some downtime and you would like to um, ch- catch up on that, go ahead and do that. And I'll warn you, some of it is going to be super technical, and I'm again I'm doing my best to whittle it down and explain it as simply as possible, as quickly as possible. But There's some really important details in there, and I'm not going to be including all of those in my article or in this video per se. That's just like if you're super nerdy about this trial and you want to get the extra stuff, there you go. There's all the tweets, and you can get it all there. All right, so let's go ahead and jump forward. Right now what I'm doing, what I've been doing for the last hour and a half and what I'll be doing tonight after we wrap up here is writing an article for The Last American Vagabond can i'll show you back here right now it's titled everything you need to know about week one of the second phase of the fluoride lawsuit and i'm going through all the important details of what i think uh it happened over the last six days including opening statements i'm going to be looking at the epa's opening statement uh we're looking at the first witness howard who and then dr bruce lanfear dr uh, philip granjean and just so much so everything that, that i have both from my individual interviews, plus the statements made in court is going to be in this article. It will be published tomorrow morning or early afternoon at thelastamericanvagabond.com. And of course, if you follow me on social media, you will see me share about it. But what I'd like to do today with you is to just go through some of these highlights. Um, This article is not even finished being written. I'm just dropping all my notes in here. So you're seeing my, I'm showing you my process here. Um, But I do want to read some of these pieces to you and uh, and yeah, play some videos. And then that's what we'll do today. And uh, first off, though, before I go further, just like really, really, really want to say super, super, super grateful to everybody who has donated to the crowdfunding campaign. Uh, we're doing a give, send, go where you can raise money to support me. We are aiming to raise $6,000. So far, we've raised just over 4000 So minus fees, you know, just about 3900 And so far, the trip has cost 3000 $400 uh, to be real. I mean, I've only been here for nine days and San Francisco is not cheap. I I bought a flight and a round trip flight back to Mexico. That cost me a thousand dollars. We spent now for the two week hotel stay that I'm doing here. I think it came out to be, uh, what was it? $1,400. So $2,400 just on the flight and just on the hotel. And then the rest of my costs have just been food ordering food going out to eat eating every day you know i'm not i don't have a kitchen so i'm eating what i uh, can and staying as healthy as possible while out here um and then taking a few ubers to meet with some of the scientists but all that together guys we spent $3,400 um to make this happen and i still have today tomorrow is thursday thursday friday saturday sunday monday tuesday Wednesday, trial ends Tuesday night, afternoon, Wednesday. I go home Thursday morning. So I still got a whole week here in San Francisco and I am definitely going to be eating and um, we could use the support. And that doesn't even count for anything as far as paying me for my actual time. I'm in court for five hours a day and then I'm producing content and I'm writing articles. So the money that being raised is not even going to my pocket. It's just going to cover the cost. And I'm grateful for that because I don't have the money out of pocket to cover this trip on my own. Uh, but if we go even above and beyond, I might actually get paid for this. I do get paid by Last American Vagabond for the articles I write, but I'm not being paid any specific amount for being in the courtroom and not being paid hourly for the courtroom or for breaking down these tweets or doing any of this stuff. So if you value my work um, and those who have donated or will donate, very much appreciate that. You can find the, descript- the, um, the link to donate in the description, or if you're watching on Twitter, you can find it in my pinned tweet. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into some notes here. So from the opening statements, there's a few things I wanted to mention. So Michael Connick, he is the Floyd Action Network's lead attorney. And you know, for those who don't know, in the opening statements, it's basically like you're you're summarizing your whole point of what you're gonna lay it down, right? So they they'd actually did an opening statement of like an hour long. And in that opening statement, they went over a lot of information. But the point is just try to establish to the judge, here's all the different points we're going to illustrate to you over the next couple of days. So he he did a pretty good job summarizing everything. And a lot of this discussion has really centered around like what exactly is a hazard? What is a risk? What is the difference between hazard and risk? And how does the EPA assess hazard? How does the EPA assess risk? And at what level of you know saying there's x amount of there's x amount per parts per million of this specific toxin and we see harm at this level at what level do you actually regulate it like that's where a lot of the discussion has been around so michael Connet was saying from the beginning the observed habit hazard is, hazard is the first type of risk the challenge of risk assessment is that this this type of risk is rare so when the epa decided to ban lead we didn't have risk observed uh, observed risk in this area, despite there being harm. So he's basically saying like we didn't have like a clear observed risk and know exactly at what level that was at for lead, but they knew that harm was happening and they chose to act. He talked about inferred uh, risk, and uh, he was also showing some examples of how different toxic chemicals, including dry cleaning material, lithographic printing, that they've shown up uh, below the levels of an inferred risk. And again, the government acted on that. And uh, Michael Conant also noted that there's, it's an undisputed fact that fluoride passes into the placenta during pregnancy and into the fetal brain, and that the blood-brain barrier is in development at this point, of course, and it's considered to be a critical window of development. And there's more about child interaction here and, and a little bit as well. Um, fluoride Action Network attorney Michael Conant, he outlined the different witnesses. Like I said, Dr. Howard Hu, who is a co-founder of the Element Research Project. Uh, which is a pregnancy and birth cohort funded by the EPA and the NIH. The element cohort studied prenatal exposure to toxins, including fluoride. And Connett outlines how the court's going to hear, and they I think they heard of research which did find did not find that fluoride is a neurotoxin. And Connett said that he's going to show how the people behind this study have been long-term promoters of water fluoridation. Now I want to kind of sidebar here as we get further into this because for those who've been following my reporting on this trial for. A while now since at least twenty twenty, you know that um, there were leaked emails I reported on this last year that came out during the the process of this trial, where Fluoride Action Network uh, obtained um, emails between the CDC's oral Health division and the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, Assistant Secretary of Health, Rachel Levine, showing that they there was communication saying, The the National Toxicology Program, a branch of the U.S. government, when they had a a study, a review of fluoride data that showed that fluoride lowers IQ in children, that the CDC's oral health division and Rachel Levine from the HHS were communicating behind the scenes saying this report's not going to come out. So we already have evidence that the U.S. government or branches of the U.S. government, pieces of the U.S. government have worked to prevent uh, people from having access to this information. Okay, so that's a fact, but it's important to know that as part of an agreement that the fluoride action and attorneys made with the judge, they actually agreed, for their own reasons that I think they they can explain better than I, that they would not bring up this political intervention, this political interference. You know, the judge is supposed to basically be judging the merits of the claims under the TOSCA, the Toxic Substance Control Act by the EPA, which allows for people to petition the government and say like, hey, there's, there's toxins and this thing is toxic, we think you should look at it. And then the EPA can make a ruling. And if they do find whatever substance is toxic, they're supposed to, they have several different actions, including regulating it, banning it, and doing other things, right? So this is the first lawsuit ever, uh, citizens petition that actually made it this far to a federal court under Tosca. So it's a big deal, right? But again, as part of this, they made an agreement with the judge that they would not bring up this political interference. Once again, and I let me just go ahead actually and pull it up while we're talking about it so I can show it to you. If you go to the thelastamericanvagabond.com and you check out, we actually have a page dedicated to um, all of the articles I've put together um, about fluoride. Let's blow this up. About the fluoride trial specifically, as this loads very slowly at the hotel internet. You can find every article that I've written over the last four years, uh, yeah, four years about the fluoride trial, the fluoride lawsuit, including my articles showing that, discussing these emails that show that elements of the U.S. government did indeed make an effort to block the release of this data. There it goes, finally loaded. So you can see, here's the interviews I did with Michael Connet. we're about to hear, Dr. Philippe Grandjean, you can see everything I've done. Since last year, excuse me, since the last four years, including this one, which we're not even really get into, but this is about a California dental director who we know, based on more emails that came out, that he actually sought to change some of his conclusions to remove conclusions which found a negative association related to fluoride and IQ. Um, so. I'll, I'll include the links here so you can go through all my past articles, because if you want to get caught up on that, you definitely want to. Newly released review of fluorides toxicity highlights NTP scientists battle to follow the science. Um, another one, censored review. now here we go. Following revelation of interference by Assistant Health Secretary Rachel Levine, federal judge pushes hearing and fluoride lawsuit to April. This is last year. So we're talking about this has been documented. I've been showing this for a while, um, really what's going on. So let's continue on. That was day one. Connett is outlining. They're doing the opening statement. The EPA's opening statement, they started with this phrase, the dose is the poison. And they said that Connett, Michael Connett of the Floyd Action Network, had selectively chosen quotes from the NTP, National Toxicology Program) study to uh, basically they were just accusing him of cherry picking, saying like, hey, he's cherry picking to make his points judge. It's it's more complex than that. Um, And that, you know, we should look at the NTP's conclusions themselves. The EPA is quoting, and this is true, they quoted a piece of the M- NTP's May 2022 monograph on IQ, which said, quote, associations between lower fluoride exposure and children's IQ remain unclear. More studies at lower exposure levels are needed to fully understand the potential associations and ranges typically found in the U.S. And this is the whole thing. Is like the, At this point, we've got a victory in the sense that the U.S. government, the EPA, is not even trying to deny that at the "Quote unquote higher levels of exposure to water fluoridation, your IQ, children's IQ, prenatal IQ, it is being impacted um, by water fluoridation, by exposure to this, especially prenatal. But they're still denying at the lower levels, which right now most of the United States is fluoridated at 0.7 milligrams per liter. And, um, you know, there's other Some of these studies are up to 1.5 and higher, but there's also studies that did look at the levels currently in use by the U.S. government. And again, one of the other points that the lawyers have been trying to make, as far as it is relevant, um, is that you know it's not just about water fluoridation in the United States, particularly. The U.S. is exposed; most Americans are um, are exposed to so many different toxins, and this includes fluoride. You got fluoride if you're eating processed foods and canned goods, especially, but processed foods that's gonna be constituted with tap water more than likely. Think about every restaurant you go to, more than likely tap water, unless they're saying they're using a reverse osmosis fluoride filter or something. Um, anytime you eat out, there's fluoride in pesticides. So if we're all getting exposed to pesticides through one, one degree or another. Um, if you're cooking with fluoride, of course, fluoride doesn't boil away like some things. It actually concentrates further in your food when you boil it, you're showering, and if you're drinking it, of course, and then if you got fluoride uh, at dental treatments or if you're doing the fluoride toothpaste. So there's really just more than one, there's more than one way to be exposed to fluoride. It's not just about water fluoridation. But the lawsuit is particularly focused on fluoride being uh, a neurotoxicant and it relates to the water fluoridation. So the EPA is doing their best to try to keep this very narrow and to get the judge to just focus on uh, water fluoridation saying, yes, we know that these high levels, there's exposure of there's danger in fluoride, but at these lower levels there, you know, it's unclear. And so their whole goal was to try to just muddy the waters as much as possible so that the judge is too confused to make a ruling because if he doesn't feel confident, which I will give credit to judge Edward Chen, he seems legitimately trying to keep up with all the science and I'm, I'm doing my best as well. I'm pretty versed in fluoride, but there's a lot of technical terminology and jargon being thrown around. But uh, he he genuinely seems interested in trying to get to the bottom of this, the truth. I don't think he's just bought off already. I mean, who knows? We'll see if he rules the way he should, which is to say that Floyd is a neurotoxin; <coughs> It should be banned in the United States. But he definitely seems like he's trying his best to actually keep up with the science. So sort of to say that. Now, um, see if there's a couple other points I want to make on the opening statements. And we're going to play some videos that I recorded, at least some clips. Uh, the EPA was bringing up uh, points that one of the cohorts, one of the biggest studies that has been done, uh, sort of data pool, was looking at fluoride. is called the MIREC cohort, M-I-R-E-C, and the EPA brought up in their opening statements that MIREC showed significant adverse effects on boys, but not girls, and not boys and girls when combined. They don't really know why. There's also this other, in what's called the inmus study from uh, Spain, the Basque country, which found no significant adverse effect for boys, girls or combined, which was recently published. Um, And there's other studies that haven't found effects. And so, again, we know that there are impacts, but just because there are variables like that where some studies say hey we see it in kids but not elsewhere that doesn't mean we should just totally throw it all out and not ignore it at all it means there there should be more data but i don't think that means there should be no action by the government and let's do more research and then one day again we'll do something the goal we want here is for the judge to actually rule on this and say hey look we're going to deal with this uncertainty factor which has come up quite a bit in this uh lawsuit about the fact that you know when you're when they're making a risk assessment to the epa they are supposed to consider this uncertainty factor and they've repeated many times that an uncertainty factor of 10 times so if you have measurable levels at some you know some level even if that is quote unquote lower level you have this uncertainty factor that you should apply and um and that basically is because you're trying to consider the most susceptible vulnerable populations people who might have kidney issues and other things and even small amounts of exposure to exposure to fluoride will harm them so that's the people you're trying to think about not like the people who are the healthiest and being exposed to fluoride at the lowest levels, but the people who maybe are vulnerable and being exposed to fluoride at any level could be harmful. So there was a lot of discussion around that. Judge Chen said during the opening statements of the EPA, we still must consider the margin of error even if the levels of community water fluoridation is below the levels in some of the studies which found an association between fluoride and lower IQ. Judge said, quote, what I'm hearing from the plaintiffs is that even if there is not certainty, you also have evidence that that not too far in the neighborhood above, there's a problem. Shouldn't that factor into the risk assessment? He asked the EPA. Uh, He said, the question to the court is whether plaintiffs have presented, this is what the EPA said. The question to the court is whether plaintiffs have presented evidence that 0.7 milligrams per liter in your community water fluoridation poses a neurotoxic harm. The EPA says the plaintiffs cannot prove that. Well, I wanna go ahead and play a video from one of the first, the very first witness that got called Dr. Howard Hu, who I did get a chance to interview, and I wanna let you hear from him directly about his thoughts on this whole topic. So this is Dr. Howard who the first expert witness that was presented by the Fluoride Action Network last Wednesday and that I interviewed Wednesday evening.
1: So I think um, the judge is real smart and he is trying to understand the science, um, both sides of the litigation were uh, quite rigorous in their, uh, in their examination of my testimony, uh, and I was glad that we could get into the facts uh, and the science and the interpretation of the science. Uh, and I have some confidence that the judge will uh, assimilate uh, this information and come up uh, with the best opinion at the end.
0: In your professional opinion, Is it fair to say that the conclusions of the National Toxicology Program, that there is an association between higher fluoride exposure and lower IQ in children, is accurate?
1: Uh, Yes. Um, I would say that, in my view, uh, the evidence is quite uh, persuasive, uh, that there is a negative impact of fluoride exposure on the neurodevelopment of children, particularly Um, the research that's been coming out in prenatal exposure.
0: All right. So that was Dr. Howard, who, um, let me see if I got some questions. First of all, thank you all for the positive comments. I really do appreciate it on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else and YouTube. Thank you. Um, somebody asked, what is the what is fluoride a byproduct of? Fluoride, at least in one form is a byproduct of phosphate mining, aluminum mining, and there's a big a uh, industry, Mosaic Co, uh, Hawkins Incorporated, one is based in Florida, the other I'm not sure, that um, you know if you read the book The Fluoride Deception, you can learn more about that and the whole history of that. We do talk about some of this in this article. I will be talking about that and in one of these interviews. But let me go, I want to go ahead and show you a few more points about Dr. Howard who before we move on to our next video with Dr. Bruce Lanfear, which was e- equally powerful. And again, you can find all these interviews at theconsciousresistance.com if you want to see the full things. Uh, one thing about Dr. Howard who uh, Michael Connett, remember the EPA was trying to like make a big deal about why some studies uh, have shown impacts and associations with boys but not girls. And, you know, sometimes when the data is put together, they don't find anything. Uh, Michael Condit asked if the results of studies which found different associations for boys and girls can both be true. And if so, how? He's, uh, Howard Who says, quote, yes, because of different populations, life experiences, et cetera. Things like gender differences and diet, hormones, et cetera, can produce different results. And Condit asked, Would you expect a neurotoxicant like fluoride could have a different impact on populations? Yes, we haven't tried to account for differences with our colleagues in Canada, but there is a whole set of factors that we know could be in play. And he's actually working apparently on a new study. It's called the Madres Cohort, uh, Madres Madres. you know they're trying to like be creative, I guess, with their names. Um, it, it's because it's a study that focuses on Latino, Los Angeles residents, women, uh, and it's intended to understand the environmental impacts and to measure behavioral outcomes. Conant said LA County is an area which adds fluoride to the water about how many pregnant women were included in your recently published studies. He, and uh, I don't know if he said, uh, I think it was like over a thousand. I don't have that number right here. But um, Howard, who said, we believe that this explains the spike in fluoride levels in the third trimester, because this was a really interesting part where they're talking about how these different, the, the MIREC cohort, the MADREs cohort, that they both show higher levels of fluoride in pregnant mothers in their third trimesters. And this is, they're doing urine uh, urinary fluoride levels. And he said that part of this is just that a thirsty mom at the further along pregnancy, she's drinking more water, so she's going to be consuming, if she is drinking fluoridated water, she's going to be consuming more fluoride as she gets further along the pregnancy. And part of that is because her body is, of course, having to work, do extra duties to feed her child that was inside of her. And that includes, this is really interesting, a really scary part, that you know the baby is taking everything, everything that it gets is coming from the mom. It's coming through her body, through her blood, right, into the baby. And uh, the mo- the mom's, your your body stores fluoride in your bones. So if you're consuming fluoride, it's going to get stored in your bones. Then if you have a baby inside you and the baby's trying to pull everything out of you, including calcium from the mom to build its bones, it's going to be absorbing that fluoride as well directly into it. Which is a pretty scary thought. Um, and they showed some graphs indicating that higher levels of fluoride within the thir- the urine of pregnant mothers in third trimesters And uh, one of the things Howard who told me, he said, yes, I would say that in my view, uh, you already heard this quote, the evidence is quite persuasive that there's a negative impact of fluoride exposure on the neurodevelopment of children, and uh, particularly evidence relating to prenatal exposure, which is what we're talking about inside a mom's belly. Now, the second witness they called was Dr. Bruce Lamphere, who's a public health physician, pediatric epidemiologist. He specializes in environmental exposures, including lead and other toxic chemicals. He uh, is an M.D. with the University of Missouri at Kansas City. He's been an expert on lead. Whose own, his work has been used by the EPA to help them develop their standards on lead's toxicity. So um, let's go ahead, play a clip from, I have two clips for Dr. Lamphere, and I want you guys to hear what he's got to say. Thank you guys again who are tuned in and supporting this effort to bring the truth about fluoride to the people. Check this out. This is Dr. Bruce Lamphere.
2: Well, what we found, whether we looked at urinary fluoride from the mom as a measure of exposure or water fluoride or an estimate of fluoride intake during pregnancy, in every case we saw IQ deficits in the children. For the urinary fluoride, it was only for the boys, and that's raised some questions. Why only in the boys? And we can't explain everything at this point. It raises more questions. But the consistency across those three different ways of measuring fluoride and the consistency with other really high quality studies has really raised questions about practices like community fluoridation.
0: We're going to go ahead and play a second video of Dr. Bruce Lamphere again. He is the second expert witness that was called by the Fluoride Action Network this week. I think it was Tuesday or Thursday that he was called, excuse me. Could you speak to your work related to uh, studying hypothyroidism and, uh, I think, fluoride's impact on the thyroid?
2: Yeah, so this was a study uh, that just came out in the past year. Megan Hall uh, led the study, along with Christine and the rest of the team. And what we found is that uh, women who are exposed to higher amounts of fluoride, especially if it's in the water um, or if it's a measure of fluoride intake, we saw an increased risk of those women developing hypothyroidism. Now, it didn't all happen during the court, the course of the uh, study. Uh, some of the exposure likely happened before the women even showed up. In fact, many of them already came in with a diagnosis of primary hypothyroidism. But because they uh, were in those communities either with fluoridation or not, that seemed to predict why some of them, and it wasn't a small amount. Overall, there's about a 65% increase in hypothyroidism, but when we looked at women who uh, did or didn't have an antibody against the thyroid, about 10% of people have this antibody against the thyroid, we saw that it was primarily in those without the antibody, so 90% of the population. And in that case, it was quite sizable, the increased risk. And so... There's not many studies out there like this. There's one from England that's uh, more ecologic, but very suggestive of the same thing we saw. Uh, But it raises really important questions about a serious problem.
0: I would say so myself, it raises serious questions, uh, important questions about a serious problem. So hypothyroidism being another important part of Dr. Bruce Lamphere's testimony. As I said, he's an expert in lead as well. So there was some discussion around that. there was another part of that where I would just want to mention that he was wor- he was involved in some studies looking at baby formula relating to fluoride, and uh, he's this was one of the questions that he was asked in his answer. They said, "Was the baby's consumption of formula with fluoridated water associated with lower IQ later in life?" Said yes. He confirmed they found impacts on IQ for boys and girls in the TIL twenty twenty study. So I bring that up because I mean I I've been. Let me just give you a little bit of background for those who haven't heard me say this. Fluoride was one of the first things that I ever began researching, even before I considered myself a journalist, just as an activist. It was 2010. I was just waking up. I've seen some stuff about fluoride being poisoned in the water. And I started watching. I, I read the uh, fluoride deception. I watched some some interviews on the early YouTube before all the censorship. And I felt very passionate about it. I immediately since 2010, stopped drinking anything to do with tap water, uh, started Filtering water. I haven't always used a home shower filter, but I bought one of those and just did all these life changes so that I could avoid fluoride as much as possible. And I was—that was kind of it. I, I did a little research and I had a reaction. Then I changed, made some life changes. And when I got the opportunity, I would tell people about this. But I very quickly noticed, like, wow, people say things like Doctor Strangelove. I never seen that movie, but it was definitely a, a form of programming for a certain generation to think like, oh, anybody questioning things in the water is just some nutso don't trust them, don't listen to them, I saw very quickly that, okay, in polite society, talking about fluoride harming you is just going to get you laughed out of the room. And then over the years, as I started to consider myself a journalist, doing citizen journalism, and then evolving to doing it full time, I also realized if you try to talk to people about the reality of these mountains of studies about fluoride, not only affecting the IQ, but the thyroid, as we're discussing here, but the bones, the kidneys, the liver, all these different areas, people don't take you seriously. This is why I'm one of the only journalists, other than uh, one of the, Brenda over at Children's Health Defense, who's also been in the courtroom this last week, there's no coverage of this. There was one report from Science, uh, Bloomberg Law, a couple of obscure things, but no mainstream coverage in any way. This is a federal court, So I say all that to say... I've been researching this stuff for years, and it's crazy. It's a trip for me to kind of be in a courtroom and hear this, these, uh, this information raised. And I feel more strongly than ever, honestly, about trying to not only get out the facts that are being displayed here in the fluoride trial, the fluoride lawsuit, but to do what I can to try to protect mothers and babies. I mean, I have six nieces and nephews. They're all 13 and under now. They're growing. So if they were affected by fluoride, or are still being affected by it, you know, we'll see. And, and really, really, we'll never really know. You'll never know what you could have been and maybe what, how you were affected or impacted. Um, but I try to tell all my family and friends that'll listen about this and get them out of drinking just anything to do with tap water. I've got my mom off it um, and really just trying to help who I can, where I can. But in the future, coming soon, I'm going to uh, be trying to find some some good companies that I can trust and work with on filtration systems and other ways that you can avoid fluoride that I can. I, we can get some solutions out there because this is the more I'm learning and just confirming some things I've already known over the years through this lawsuit. It's, it's disturbing. It's crazy. It really is insane to think about this, that like there are people pregnant mothers right now creating, drinking fluoridated uh, water and then making that they're having babies and then feeding their babies formula with reconstituted with fluoridated water. And even if they're breastfeeding, they if they're drinking fluoride, it's all going into the baby as well. So it's just, it's so important, It's so important to expose the truth about this right now. Okay, let's go to the third witness. I'm going to start to wrap up soon. Uh, again, guys, thank you for tuning in. I'm breaking down what happened in the first week of the fluoride lawsuit. I've been here in San Francisco for the last week and will be for one more week. Philippe Grandjean, who is a uh, Danish scientist who's done amazing work, he was the third witness that was called the Danish scientist working in environmental medicine. He's the head of the environmental medicine research unit at the University of Southern Denmark. Uh, Denmark adjunct professor of environmental health at the Harvard School of Public Health. He is seen as one of the leading researchers on the toxicity of mercury. The EPA actually contracted him to develop the reference dose on methyl mercury. Now, I want to play you a clip from him where he's discussing how fluoride negatively affects bone density and brain function. So check this out. This is video one of Dr. Philippe Grangine that I, I believe this is the right one. Check it out. If it's not, it's going to be important either way.
3: I've done population studies on mercury exposure, in particular in regard to the adverse effects on brain development in children that have been exposed uh, since uh, the beginning of life uh, to mercury from the mother's diet. And um, I've also done research on fluoride. It started um, uh, (laughs) about 50 years ago Because um, Copenhagen in Denmark was where fluoride poisoning was discovered uh, in the form of what's called skeletal fluorosis, which means that uh, the bones uh, become denser. And on the x-ray, it looks like marble. Uh, And uh, it also tends to get more brittle so that you would more easily break your arm and way back then when that was discovered in the 1930s it was also discovered that the workers who had these high exposures had uh, symptoms from the central nervous system that is that fluoride likely was affecting the functions of the brain so we have now lately followed that up in regard to brain development in small children so
0: just yeah powerful stuff here and that was in response again you can see the full interview at theconsciousresistance.com that was in response to me asking him about the the work of a researcher uh kai broham i think is his name he uh, was a danish researcher as well and back in 1930 he was researching this and he actually pushed skeletal fluorosis and some of harms fluoride in 1937 almost a hundred years ago guys so do not let this kind of propaganda that they're oh we're just figuring out that there's harms fool you because they've known that there have been harms for some time and i think that's important to put on the record they're trying to kind of act like they're just figuring this stuff out with recent studies um but no they're, they're not enough 100- honey now I want to read another part here from Philippe Grandjean, and then we're going to hear a couple more videos from him. That you're, I'm the only person that's got this reporting, and I'm proud of that. Now, this is another statement from uh, Dr. Grandjean. He says, when we merge all, this is about IQ, when we merge all the findings, we can see that there is a tendency. The higher the fluoride exposure during fetal life, that is from the mother's exposure, the greater loss in IQ at school age. It's like the overall average is that for each milligram of additional fluoride, the child will lose two IQ points. The one milligram is, and one milligram is something that can easily happen in this country because there is 0.7 milligrams of fluoride per liter of drinking water in the fluoridated communities. And if you drink a couple liters of community water, you easily get a couple of milligrams of extra fluoride. And that is certainly, according to our findings, is associated with the loss in cognitive function, that is, in IQ of the baby and the child as we examined at school age. So just hammering home the point. That there are, there, there are loss of IQs. There's measurable lo- loss of IQ taking place. And, you know, I have I used to kind of – well, let me just say this. I wouldn't write an article saying the government is trying to kill you and dumb you down with fluoride. I wouldn't even name a video of that. I'll tell you that right now. I believe that's probably what's happening. And if you meet me at the bar one night and we're having a conversation, I might tell you my theories on this and that. But there is no document that exists, and we will never find, I believe, a document that says, here is the dumbing down program um, using uh, hydrofluorosilicic acid. And in fact, I've seen a few comments here, including one right now, about the idea of fluoride being used to dump people down in the communist camps or the Nazi camps. And I want to say, and this is something that I believe, as well as the Fluoride Action Network believes, that there, that is not a strong argument, and there's no evidence to back it up. Uh, and it's not worth arguing and 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 putting out there because we have much stronger evidence that shows that fluoride does cause harm. If you follow the claims of Nazis and communists using fluoride in the concentration camps, which I have, and you, you know, yeah I know you've seen it on a meme or something, but try to track it down. Try to find an article that mentioned this and then try to track down that source and then try to track down where that source got it from. Eventually, you will get to what I've found. References to an article that was written back in the 1930s or early 40s, that the the newspaper no longer exists. There are no archives of this newspaper, there's no digital archives, so there, there, there's no physical archives even. I've I've tried to look. I can't remember the name of the paper, but I've I've done the, I need to probably put this in a video so you guys can I can share it next time somebody says this. But there's no evidence of it. So even if it were true, let's imagine it were true, which could be, I'm not gonna deny that it could be true. Um, there's no hardcore evidence of it. And that means that when you say it, you basically just are setting yourselves up to be fact-checked or debunked by somebody. So I'm just putting that out there. I don't think that there's hard evidence out there to try to rest your whole case on that. But with that said, and what I said a moment ago that they've known that these impacts have been taking place for decades, it is hard not to see that some human beings have made decisions to deny or ignore and ignore and try to debunk evidence showing that fluoride does impact cognitive function. So if you think about this, if people have known that fluoride impacts uh, cognitive function in a negative way and known this for decades, almost 100 years in some cases, that information has surely been out there. and, And if we can find it, surely these intelligent scientists can find it. Then why would they do that? Why would they purposely do that? Why would they purposely put something in the water if they come to find out it has a negative impact that causes lower IQ in people? Greed, you know, there's a lot of powerful interests that are behind this, as you're going to hear in just a moment in another interview. But, you know, it does beg the question. So I have become more and more open to the idea that this is a dumbing down program. Again, I'm not going to write an article on that. I'm not going to try to hang my whole uh, reputation on that. Um, but I do think that um, I do think that it, it it's it's likely you know the case. Now here's another qu- comment I'll address real quick before I move on. again, we're we're recapping the first week of the fluoride uh, trial, the second phase of the fluoride trial. We got a comment here that says we need to differentiate between the two different types of fluoride. One is natural and the other is a form of industrial waste. This is true, but it really doesn't make a difference, Luke. There are studies showing even naturally occurring fluoride. In fact, some of the cohorts, I think, is the um, element or the Myrat. I think the element cohort, if I'm correct, um, was in Mexico. It's either the element or the we were based in Mexico, and we're looking at naturally occurring fluoride um, as well as fluoridated salt. So it's not just the just one source of the other. There's also people in fluoridated, natu- like naturally occurring fluoridated communities, and africa and other places india that have been studied and they find uh, bone problems bone density problems bone issues um uh, what is their name like these uh bone fragments i can't remember the terminology but there's definitely harm from fluoride whether it's naturally occurring or industrial waste both of them have been linked to to harms in humans all right let's go on to the next part of this and we're going to play a couple more videos So, Philippe Grandjean, who's the third uh, expert witness for the Fluoride Action Network and was really just dropping some some truth bombs throughout this, I asked him about statements he made in 2020 during the first phase of this lawsuit where he said that threats had been made against him at Harvard. And he also said something about the fluoride lobby, those are his words, had been exerting influence at the World Health Organization. So let's go ahead and play these two clips. This first one is him talking about what happened while he was at Harvard. And how his work was threatened uh, in a little in a different way, so check this out. This is Dr. Philippe Granding You stated that um, you were coerced by a colleague at the Harvard Dental School to sort of sign a statement that sort of downplayed the significance of your study. Could you
3: speak to that incident? To understand uh, fluoride better, we um, carried out uh, a joint analysis of all of the publications uh, we could find that related to early life exposure to fluoride and uh, brain function uh, in childhood. And that got published in a journal that's put out by the National Institutes of Health. And when that was published, uh, a professor from Harvard University uh, came to my office and asked me to sign a statement that my work on fluoride had nothing to do with fluoridation. And um, he he actually uh, wrote this draft. I I still have it in in my possession. And since I didn't uh, sign this immediately, he instead went to my dean and uh, had the dean sign a statement that he supported uh, water fluoridation in accordance with the policy of the Centers for, for Disease Control, CDC. Uh, my dean had not yet seen my publication on fluoride and therefore he had no concern uh, signing it. Um, and later on I was told by uh, the leadership at, at Harvard that uh, my research on, on fluoride uh, was unwanted, and had never been approved by Harvard. So um, be, because we, we couldn't agree on my, what I would consider academic freedom, uh, I left Harvard.
0: Pretty powerful. He left Harvard because he couldn't, um, you know, he couldn't get the academic freedom that he that he wanted. And j- so I'm proud that I got to ask him about that because, you know, one of the things I always, my pet peeve is, There's a statement like that made, like, for example, oh, in this court case, this uh, witness said he was threatened at Harvard. Moving on. And you never find out what the heck, like, whoa, I should hear more about that. What were the details? Who did the threatening? What was it about? So this is the first time he's stating on record uh, that story about people trying to threaten him at Harvard. Now, I also asked him about a statement he made regarding the World Health Organization. He had been invited to participate in a panel, a committee at the World Health Organization, and uh, looking into fluoride. And he, he also ran into some corruption there. So check out this clip. This, this one's three minutes long. Dr. Philippe Grandjean discussing his involvement with the World Health Organization and how the fluoride lobby has infiltrated the WHO.
3: My experience with fluoride actually goes back many years because the World Health Organization asked me to help them develop what they called an environmental health criteria document on fluoride. So I drafted uh, that document that reviewed uh, the sources of fluoride in the environment, including drinking water, uh, the animal data, and the epidemiology. Uh, and um, WHO then called a working group to develop the final version of that based on my draft. And what happened was that um, the working group uh, had, I think it was a majority of uh, people with uh, dental um, research backgrounds. And um, they inserted changes in my draft, indicating that fluoride could perhaps be toxic, but only at immense uh, concentrations. And um, when I um, protested and said that in in accordance with the scientific documentation, it would be wrong to insert the word immense and so um, uh, the working group uh, asked me to kindly go to the library and and bring the documentation back and so I, I said under the circumstances I could not take responsibility for being part of the authorship so I would rather leave the WHO meeting, which I did. It's the only time I've ever done that. But I was confronted with colleagues from the dental uh, science uh, and, and they insisted on changes that I found scientifically inappropriate. And so uh, WHO published a document and uh, without my name, because I'd asked to have my name stricken, but, but then they inserted uh, some other colleague's name um, as the author of the draft, which, which is, of course, er- erroneous. But that w- was what WHO felt was necessary in order to protect the interests of Water fluoridation.
0: Really, really powerful stuff. I mean, I don't know how much more clear it can get that there is a clearly um, complex of interest. And I know for many of my audience, much of my audience is probably like, oh, surprise, surprise, Derek. Like, we didn't know this. I get it. We can feel blackpilled. Like, we've already got it all figured out and we know everything's corrupt. But it's different between having an instinct that things are corrupt and sort of vaguely understanding that, and then having somebody who's kind of on the inside and experienced it, a scientist, especially because we're all being told to follow the science and trust scientists. Well, here's scientists who are speaking out about corruption that's taking place behind the scenes, which is exactly why people like us are skeptical of the science and don't just blindly trust everything that we're being told by the experts. Instead, we think for ourselves, and lo and behold, there are still some scientists who are doing that. Um, I've got a couple other points that we're going to wrap up here in just a moment. I've, already, I've almost been at this for an hour and I'm ready to get the heck off here. I've got a long article to write because after this, the Florida Action Network presented Dr. Brian Barrage and then Dr. Kathleen Thiessen, neither of who, wh- whom I was able to interview, unfortunately. And then, I, as I mentioned earlier today, the Florida Action Network rested their case today. They concluded their their uh, presenting of Dr. Kathleen Thiessen and they rested their case so they went through five experts over the last five days six days and now the epa has begun their part and they started with the dr savitz today that was the most recent thing that that you can see and again if you want to go caught up before i put out my article tomorrow you can go here to theconsciousresistance.com and see my latest post where you can see each of these broken down by day and by part and if you click that it opens up these little thread readers that you can easily read through everything that was posted and uh, yeah, that's where it's going to continue. So t- tomorrow, Thursday, the court is off. we we're, there's no court tomorrow, uh, which is cool. Take a little bit of break and work on this article. And I have some interviews scheduled. I'll be promoting, uh, promoting, and we're you know I've I've reached out to the High Wire, my friends over there. I've reached out to Valuetainment, Patrick, Bet David. We've emailed um, uh, Tim Cast. We've emailed Jimmy Dore, Kim Iverson. If you follow these people with big platforms. Let them know this story matters. Nobody's covering it. I mean, I'm the one of two people here uh, covering it, and I'm trying to do as much content as I can—articles, live tweeting, video interviews, uh, documenting this for the record in case it doesn't go our way. But either way, it should be front page news right now. And this, this is what the Floyd. The want. they don't be much public attention on this because the reality is that if the judge does rule that fluoride is a neurotoxin and that it needs to be banned or you know just it could open up the government to lawsuits um lawsuits where they could basically sue you think about all, all the families class action lawsuits saying that you dumbed my kid down or maybe my kids th- my thyroid issues are related to my fluoride exposure or my bone problems are related to my fluoride exposure right and the uh, american dental association the fda the cdc all the health agencies have been promoting Floyd as one of the top 10 public health achievements of the 20th century. So if this does go their other way, it could be it could be really bad. And I mean, that's why I'm saying there's a lot of interest and in people who don't want it to go this way. So I think the judge is being fair. Judge Chin is trying to keep up with the science and really doing his best. Um, he's shut down the government a few times. he's shut down the Floyd Action Network a few times. He seems to really be trying to understand that. And I think he does understand the weight of the decision he has to make. So uh it's gonna be interesting to see how things go next week. So tomorrow I'll be taking a break off to put out this new article, do some interviews. Friday, I'm back in the court, I'm live tweeting every day. Monday, Tuesday, things wrap up Tuesday night. Next Wednesday, I'll probably doing another live stream to summarize the final three days, second week of the trial, and then I fly home on Thursday. I'm excited about that. But before we wrap up today, I want to show you two more interviews. These are with Michael Conant, who is the lead attorney who's actually uh, fighting this case for the Fluoride Action Network. So check out these. First, we'll go through one. I'll make a comment. We'll go to the second one, and we'll wrap up for the day. Guys, thank you so much. Be sure to subscribe and follow wherever you're listening uh, and share this out and, and sign up for my email list at theconsciousresistance.com. Again, this is Michael Conant, lead attorney for the Fluoride Action Network.
4: We're the first citizen groups to ever go all the way to a federal trial in a citizen petition under the Toxic Substance Control Act. So in the 40-plus years of the act, no one's done that before. We did that in June of 2020. We had a seven-day trial featuring expert testimony on both sides. Um, And the judge at the end of that trial stated that he wanted to wait to make his decision until the National Toxicology Program, NTP, released its um, systematic review of fluoride neurotoxicity. At that time in 2020, the NTP had already been working on the review for about four years. And the thought at that time was that the review would be published pretty soon, maybe in a few months. And so the judge put the case on hold because he wanted to see the NTP's conclusions. The NTP is the sort of the subject matter experts on toxicology issues at the federal government. They're within the National Institutes of Health. And so the case was put on hold. Now, we weren't thrilled about that. We were hoping to get a decision, but we could certainly understand the court's interest to hear sort of what the more of an authoritative assessment from this federal body. So the case was on hold and we waited and waited and waited. And two years later in the summer of 2020, I got word from someone in a position of knowledge, an anonymous source saying that something was happening, political interference was occurring and that the report was being uh, squashed. And, and it may never be published, may never be published. And when I heard that, it was, I went to the court and I, and I told the court what we found out. And I just asked to, to, to take the case out of the, the abeyance or out of the stay because we could, keep, we could wait forever in which case we, don't, we won't have a case, right? And the judge agreed and agreed to, to put the case back on for a second trial. And then, um, based on some additional back and forth with the DOJ, Department of Justice, we were able to secure a a copy of the draft NTP report on fluoride neurotoxicity, which had been completed by NTP scientists, but but it was not allowed to be released. But we were able to secure a copy to see what it said, and that report, what is considered a draft report, is in evidence in this case and is very much a focus of the um, of this current second phase of trial.
0: All right, yeah, so that's powerful stuff from Michael Connett. Let's go ahead to another clip from Michael Connett before we wrap up for the night, guys. Again, he's the lead attorney fighting this case for the Fluoride Action Network and the plaintiffs. What was the conclusion of the May 2022 draft report?
4: The conclusion is that the human evidence on fluoride and IQ is consistent. It's consistent in showing a reduction in IQ as you increase your fluoride exposure. And it's not only consistent, uh, it's a large database, but it's not only a large database, um, the evidence is such that the NTP felt confident that potential sources of bias, like confounding or exposure errors or outcome errors, um, the kinds of things you look to to sort of interrogate whether an association between a chemical and a hazard is real, the NTP felt confident that these potential biases are not the reason for this association we see between fluoride and IQ. And that's a really significant thing Um, a significant finding because it gives you confidence that this relationship between fluoride and IQ is real. It is causative.
0: And through the lawsuit, you've submitted emails that you also obtained via FOIA, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, that show it wasn't just that the report was delayed for whatever reason, but there was actual, uh, it appears based on these emails that there was actual orders from uh, officials, higher officials, to keep this report from being completed and released. Could you speak to that?
4: Absolutely. So when I found out from this anonymous source that there was something going on, there was political interference. I immediately began working with one of the plaintiffs in the case, Christy Laval, on filing a lot of FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests to a bunch of different federal agencies as well as state agencies. And we wanted to find out sort and get those communications to see what happened. And we have got those communications, or a lot of them, and they paint a very clear picture. April 28th, 2022, the NTP ident- tells the other agencies within the HHS, the CDC, NIDCR, FDA, Um, that the report is done, the conclusions are set, and the NTP will be releasing the report in mid to late May, okay? At that point in time, it was panic. You had the CDC and the NIDCR, which are very aggressive promoters of water fluoridation for a long time here in the United States. They immediately went into action, are coordinating meetings with each other, and then speaking with the um, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, which is the, um, Rachel Levine is the Assistant Secretary of Health, They're also talking with the director's office of the NIH. And so you see this sort of communication and collaboration amongst sort of the dental interests within the HHS, really pushing back and trying to stymie the NTP from releasing the report. And
0: Michael Conant, lead attorney of the Fluoride Action Network, guys. My name is Derek Brose. I'm here in San Francisco for one more week. We have tomorrow off, things pick back up on Friday and then Monday and Tuesday. And I'll be here for every day, live tweeting, expect more interviews. I'm going to try to interview the EPA's witnesses. and I'm not just going to interview one side of the scientists who are saying fluoride is bad for you, but I'm going to try to interview the scientists who are saying fluoride is actually not harmful at all. In fact, one of the scientists is going to claim that fluoride increases your IQ. So I'm going to try to interview uh, at least two of those witnesses who I know are going to be here in person for the EPA and uh, hear their stories as well. And um, yeah, and then I'll be documenting everything that happens here. I just want to remind you, if you can donate, I've posted the link wherever you're watching. Uh, this is our crowdfunding campaign: givesendgo.com/fluoride trial. Our goal has been to raise $6,000. We've raised just about $4,191, so maybe about $4,100 or $4,000 minus fees and such. And there's been so many kind, positive comments here. People are donating and, and just leaving me some really kind comments uh, that I, I'm, I am reading them and I'm grateful for them. So thank you to everybody who has donated. Um, again, this, tri- this trip has already cost $3,400 uh, and I still got a week to go and I'm going to need to eat and stuff. So it'd be great if I don't have to spend any of this money out of pocket. I know you guys all got things to pay for and I, I understand that if you've got five bucks that you can give, it helps me continue to eat while on this trip so I can focus and continue to bring you this content. I wish that we could get $10,000 because this is realistically what it takes to do one journalism trip on one trial. It costs time, flights, hotels, food, and then of course it would be great to get paid on top of that. But nonetheless, if we can just continue to donate here, we'll make sure that I can get home safely and uh, that everything that needs to be reported on will be reported on, that I'll have the energy and the food and the strength to keep going and get more interviews for you guys. So thank you to everybody who has been donating there. Again, you can bookmark my website, theconsciousresistance.com, where you can see this latest post, week one of part two, where you can check out all of my tweets from the last six days and uh, check all the full interviews at theconsciousresistance.com. You can see our whole, whole section on water fluoridation and get yourself all caught up. So Thank you guys so much for being here with me. I appreciate you. Until next time, my friends, remember you are powerful, you are beautiful, and you are free. Peace, stop drinking fluoride. Since 2012, the Conscious Resistance Network has been an independent media organization focused on empowering individuals through education, philosophy, health, and community organizing. We work to create a world where corporate and state power do not rule over the lives of free human beings. Our motto is leading by example and helping others in their pursuit of freedom. Visit theconsciousresistance.com to find our articles, documentaries, interviews, podcasts, books, and more. Remember, you are powerful, you are beautiful, and you are free.